Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to. And then we provide short, expert summaries, no bigger than a spoonful, so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. If you'd like to support us or reward yourself for your time with the journal feed, then we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which were brought to you by the enchanting Clay Smith. The first article for this week was titled Ketamine versus Atomidate and Peri-Intubation Hypotension, a National Emergency Airway Registry Study added the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Reaching into the quiver of induction agents, we have two that aren't supposed to tank our patients' blood pressures. The first is ketamine, which we all know is magical, and it can even cause catecholamine release, and that usually raises blood pressure and BP. But it can also cause myocardial depression, so hypotension is still possible. Our other choice is Atomidate, which is supposed to be hemodynamically neutral, but unfortunately has the side effect of adrenal suppression for about 24 hours, which is of questionable clinical significance, but it still happens. So these are the two agents laid out to choose from if we want to avoid hypotension. Which does a better job? This study was a retroactive look at the National Emergency Airway Registry data, comprising the hemodynamic effects in non-hypertensive patients over 15 years old in 738 intubations with ketamine and 6,068 intubations with atomidate. Defining peri-intubation hypotension as a systolic pressure below 100 millimeters of mercury, ketamine actually turned out to be more likely to cause hypotension at 18.3% versus only 12.4% intomidate. That's a 6% difference. That's not nothing. More patients also needed to be treated for this hypotension when ketamine was used. This group was also more likely to have a difficult airway and have video laryngoscopy used over direct laryngoscopy. So these results might have been confounded if doctors were choosing ketamine for use in their sicker patients. Low-dose ketamine, on the other hand, which was equal to or less than 1 milligram per kilogram, was not found to be associated with hypotension at all. These authors emphasized three takeaways. First, ketamine was not superior for hemodynamics in unstable patients. Second, always optimize your patient before intubation, no matter what drug you plan to use. And third, use low-dose ketamine in very unstable patients. Our own takeaways, in a spoonful, were that ketamine was associated with higher risk of peri-intubation hypotension than atomidate. Now, the second article, titled Atomidate Use, is associated with less hypotension than ketamine for emergency department sepsis intubations, a near-cohort study out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Again here, guys, we're in danger of ketamine losing its throne as the go-to for safer and more hemodynamically stable intubations. Surely, it'll redeem itself in septic patients, though. Or will it? Again, this was using the National Emergency Airway Registry data, looking at 531 patients with sepsis who were intubated. 71% of them got atomidate, and most of the remainder got ketamine. When we compare the two, ketamine was associated with post-intubation hypotension in nearly three times as many patients as with atomidate, 
even with statistical adjustment, the odds ratio was 2.7. But in the short term, there is no difference in short-term emergency department mortality. So, in a spoonful, ketamine was associated with a nearly three times greater odds of post-intubation hypotension in septic patients compared with etomidate. Next, we have the third article titled, Does Beta Blockade for Treatment of Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation or Pulseless Ventricular Tachycardia Improve Outcomes? Out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Now, I haven't personally ever had a heart attack, but I imagine it's very stressful. And what happens when you're stressed? Well, your sympathetic tone goes way up, 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 up. On top of that, we ramp it up even higher by giving these patients epinephrine. It's possible we might be overdoing it a bit. All of this sympathetic tone can lead to more myocardial oxygen consumption, and this can make cells more electrically unstable. So what if we throw in a beta blocker to help mitigate some of these effects? This was a rapid review of a previous meta-analysis where they found three studies that looked at beta blocker use for refractory VFib and pulseless VTAC. Two of these studies were relevant to this analysis and found that for the most important outcome, which is of course survival with favorable neurological outcome, the use of beta blockers markably improved the odds of achieving that outcome with an odds ratio of 4.42. It also improved overall survival and ROSC on top of it. Honestly though, after three shocks and no improvement, why not give a beta blocker? In these two studies, that beta blocker that was used was Esmolol. Keep in mind though that the sample study for this was only 66 patients, so the certainty of these results is definitely on the lower side. In a spoonful, beta blockers may improve survival with favorable neurological outcome and also ROSC in patients with refractory VFib and pulseless VTAC. And now the fourth article titled Prediction of Cerebral Venous Thrombosis with a New Clinical Score and D-Dimer Levels out of the Journal of Neurology. Dural venous sinus thrombosis, also called cerebral venous thrombosis, so I'm just going to call it CVT, is a hard diagnosis to make. This condition can arise after trauma, but it can also come on spontaneously and should be on your differential for thunderclap headaches. On the other side of the coin, it can also come on slowly and cause severe retroorbital pain. So you can see that this is tricky. It's a tricky diagnosis to make, but once you've arrived at it, then a CT or MRI venous phase can confirm the diagnosis. That is, hopefully you've thought of it in the first place. This article was a prospective study in order to design a scoring system to diagnose CVT and establish a D-dimer threshold for a better idea from sort of the lab perspective as well. The prevalence of disease in this cohort was about 26% out of 359 patients. Using multiple logistic regression, they made a scoring system from 0 to 14 points or 0 to 17 points if you want to count D-dimer. The scoring system was thus. Seizures at presentation was worth 4 points. Known thrombophilia was also worth 4 points. Using an oral contraceptive was worth 2 points. The duration of symptoms over 6 days was worth 2 points. Worst headache ever worth 1 point. Focal neurological deficit at presentation also worth 1 point. And finally, you can choose to use a D-dimer over 500 and that would be worth three points. A few important points of our own to make, 
is that there is no patient with CVT who had a D-dimer less than 500. And if you scored between 9 and 17 counting the D-dimer, then the positive predictive value was 100%. On the other end of the spectrum, there is no patient with a score less than 2 and a D-dimer less than 500 who had a CVT. This is just the birth of this scoring system, and no one should dare rely on it until it's been externally validated, but it's a nice list of things for you to consider in headache patients and might help on your way to considering advanced imaging. I'll keep my eye out for the validation of this risk score. In a spoonful, this study worked to develop a scoring system for the diagnosis of cerebral venous thrombosis. While it still needs to be validated, it's nice to see that no cases were seen with a score less than 2 or D-dimers less than 500. Finally, the last article titled Antacid Monotherapy is more effective in relieving epigastric pain than in combination with lidocaine, a randomized double-blind clinical trial out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Boy, oh boy, this article has really made a splash. I've seen it everywhere in a lot of the blogs that I follow myself. So let's say a patient comes in, sees you, and they have chest pain. You've started your workup, and it's looking like it might be coming from the GI tract. So you mix them up a GI cocktail, and in that cocktail, you may well be including lidocaine. Lidocaine is nice. It kind of essentially numbs everything that it touches. So theoretically, if you drank some of it, and then your pain went away, then you'd think that the lidocaine must have touched something that was causing the pain. And so, the pain must have been coming from your GI tract. Unfortunately, in medicine, everything's kind of more complicated than it seems. And it's already questionable whether or not additives like lidocaine or Donatol are actually adding to the effect of GI cocktails above the other important ingredient, which you'd like to include, which is, of course, antacids. This was a single-blinded RCT of 89 patients with reflux-type pain who were randomized to antacid monotherapy, antacid with 2% lidocaine solution, or antacid with 2% lidocaine gel. The primary outcome was pain reduction on a visual analog scale at 30 minutes. So at 30 minutes, both the antacid alone group and the antacid mixed with lidocaine solution, not gel group, gave clinically significant reductions in pain of 20 and 17 points respectively. The gel group only had a reduction of 9 points, and you need more than 13 to be considered clinically significant on a visual analog scale. If we start doing some stats though, we see that none of them were significantly different from each other, with antacid monotherapy being the best, but again, not significantly. So if none of them are better for pain, we have to consider other things. And for that, it's important to note that the antacid alone was much more palatable. I expect this is because lidocaine causes oral numbness, and really that sounds quite unpleasant. If you look a bit farther out at 60 minutes, then all three groups had significant pain relief. In a spoonful, antacid monotherapy is as effective, if not more effective, than GI cocktails that include lidocaine. On top of that, antacid alone was more palatable and had fewer side effects. So what did we learn today? Let's do a rapid review of everything that we covered. From the first article, ketamine, ketamine, lost out to automidate. Automidate causes less instances of peri-intubation hypotension. From the second article, again, ketamine failed against automidate, causing nearly three times more peri-intubation hypotension than automidate in septic patients. 
from the third article, you've got a coding patient. You're dealing with a refractory VFib or pulseless VTAC. The patient is pumped full of catecholamines already. Why not try a beta blocker to give their heart a little bit of a break? This study showed improved rates of ROSC and survival with favorable neurological outcomes with beta blocker use. From the fourth article, a scoring system for cerebral venous thrombosis. High scores and low scores seem to be helpful, especially if you factored in a D-dimer cutoff of 500. This will need to be externally validated before clinical application, though. Finally, from the fifth article, it's the death of the GI cocktail. It sounded like such a clever idea, but it seems that the evidence points towards that antacid alone is just as good, if not better, and more pleasant than GI cocktails that include lidocaine. And that's it for this week, everybody. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, or if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.